and welcome to episode 13 of the Geeks at the Gates. Wasn't going to do any talky talk at the start of the podcast, but circumstances mean that I must. First of all, really sorry, this is now late. Nearly a week late. The very simple reason for that is, unusually, this was not recorded uh, with people around the table in a comic shop. This was recorded over Skype, and we had some really horrible audio issues. It's taken me a week to clean up. Still, probably, this is the worst audio of any podcast we've put out. It's as fixed as it's getting. I'm really sorry. I even had to re-record some bits of me. So, you know, full disclosure, that happened. We are talking about Terry Pratchett. Over Skype, it's me. Um, my good friend, Lynn Coppendale, who is, amongst other things, a former school librarian, and Lynn's sister, Tina, who is a London lawyery type person. I'm going to be sounding the spoiler horn uh, as soon as I finish chatting here, but before I do that, one tiny little thing. I'm going to blame the fact that because we were recording from our homes... Uh, there may have been some consumption of wine involved here for reasons that I simply cannot fathom because I was looking at the books on my bookshelf as we were recording. I keep saying that the first Tiffany Aiken um, is A Hatful of Sky, and it isn't. It's We Free Men, and I know that. Okay, so please don't write in about that. I know I was being an idiot. Forgive me. I do actually mention that it was We Free Men eventually in the podcast, but just so that it doesn't bug you all the way through. That's a thing that happened. Okay, I'm not going to bother with the ad this week. Um, it's still Destination Venus. We're at DV Comic Shop on Twitter. Find us on Facebook where we're Destination Venus Comic. Don't swing by the website. It's still down. That should be sorted in the next couple of weeks. Um, so, quick blast of the spoiler horn, and we'll get into it. Spoilers! Spoilers! Welcome to the Geeks at the Gates, and a bit of a change of format this week. Um, we are not recording in a comic shop, closed or otherwise. Uh, I am, in fact, sitting at my dining room table, which is great, because it means I've also got a glass of wine. We're not... <laughs> Shush. Uh, we're not in the comic shop, because the regular Geeks are not here. They're all busy tonight. I'd say they were washing their hair, with the exception of hat. None of them have got any. Also... Uh, when I talked to the, red, the, the regular geeks about this, this is a subject that inexplicably didn't seem to grab them. Um, and it's something that I've planned to do for a long time. Uh, we are going to be talking about um, Terry Patchett. Yay! <laughs> um, with two extremely enthusiastic geeks. I'm going to call them geeks. I don't know whether you, whether you would identify as geeks, ladies, but... Um, uh, proud, geek and proud. Uh, so, for the purposes of this evening, I will be Reg in Harrogate. I will be Tina in London. And I will be Lynn in Doncaster. Uh, something I need to explain. You may find it, dear listener, difficult to differentiate between Tina and Lynn. Uh, there is a reason for that. They are, they are identical twins. And uh, if you see them both in the same room, they are quite difficult to tell apart. <laughs> well, it's easy for you... I don't even know which one of you said that. Yeah, now. We both said that. Fair enough. Okay, actually, no, yeah, all right. All right. Okay, yes, Lynn, you've now got blue hair. But before you had blue hair, you were quite difficult to tell apart. I'll give you that. Oh, is it going to be like this all night? Yeah. Yes. Excellent. Um, <laughs> God. Also, dear listener, please forgive us a little bit if this recording is not up to our usual high, high standards, he says with a... Okay. He says with a perfectly straight face. Um, this is the first time um, we've done a podcast over Skype. 
apart from the podcast I did with Jason Bryce in New Zealand, and they didn't work. So um, hopefully the problems are fixed now. Uh, but if it sounds a little bit ratty, uh, that could be why. It's because we're communicating over the internet, and we will probably end up talking over each other quite a lot because we can't see each other. So um, all of that said, all of those caveats done, Lynn, Tina, hello. Hello. Really, really, really nice to talk to you both. I don't think I've ever talked to you both at the same time before. Yes, you did at my wedding. Yeah. No, you didn't. I didn't. You were never in the same place at the same time when I was at your wedding. Oh, luck! That's shocking. Yeah, I barely got to speak to Tina at all, in fact. Yeah. Uh, She'd performed her duties well. Indeed. It's because I'm such a lightweight. I left early. I'm terrible, terrible lightweight. Anyway, uh, we're talking about Tim Pratchett. Um, which I know is a subject close to all of our hearts. I guess probably the best thing to do is to start with how we found Pratchett in the first place. Um, so, and I think I've already heard your story, Lynn, so I'm going to start with Tina, if that's okay. Yeah, go for it. Okay, I'll be interested, actually. I don't know Lynn's story. It might be very similar to mine. It was a birthday present from a friend. Do you remember those little mini box sets you used to be able to get, the first three books? in really shortened versions. Yes. Uh, I think you can still get them as, like, little presents. Well, a friend of mine got me that for the birthday. Mm-hmm. One of them was Mort. Uh. And I fell in love with the character. Mm-hmm. Not a, a death, but actually Mort. Yeah. And I decided I wanted to read the full book. And then I realised it's the fourth in the series. So I went back. I think that was it. <laughs> Just keep reading them. So you were hooked. So, so, so what sort of age are we talking about here? Well, it was quite, I was going to say it's quite late, but actually maybe it wasn't. 17 or 18? Well, that's about when I found it too, actually. I was in the sixth form, certainly. Younger than that for those books, I might have missed, I still miss a lot of the references, because he's so clever. And, mm. he's and he brings in all sorts of random cultural references and historical references and if you don't know, you don't know. So that's one of the beauties about reading again, I think. Mm. Yes. I... But yeah, if I read him any younger, I might not have got him. Mm. Yeah, I think that's a very good point, actually. Yeah. I, I'm just, I'm glad I've told you this before, Reggie, because I can't actually remember. <laughs> I just... Well, look. With the Weird Sisters. Uh-huh. Um, the Witches. Yes. And I did read them in the right order. Good. And I cannot remember. It's so long ago now. I cannot remember when it was, which is weird because given that at the time, Tina and I would obviously have been living in the same house. How did we manage to find it separately? I'm not sure we were living in the same house. Because uni then, wouldn't it? It would have been at uni and that's probably why we didn't swap the book. I'm sure I got I found Terry Pratchett a lot earlier because I was working in the library. Yeah, you probably did. And then, but Reggie, I, what did I tell you? Working because I had a Saturday job in our local library when I was at sixth form, and I very likely just stumbled across it and got into the Weird Sisters, and I thought the humour was brilliant, and the characters are amazing. Yeah. They're so well drawn. They're it's what fantasy should be, as in, it's plausible. Yeah. You can believe it. Everything that happens, you can believe. And that's because... Well, John's just said something. Let me introduce my husband, John. 
Dom, what did you just say? The characters are relatable. I think that's really true, actually, yes. Good. But um, I think he's a, quite a feminist as well. Oh, absolutely, yeah. So appealed to me on so many levels. Um, you don't need to read them in order, but it's good if you do. I yeah. love the way the different series all relate to each other, but you don't need to... Yeah, I mean, you can just read The Guards or The Witches. You know, I mean, some of these stories just stand alone. Oh, and there was, um, obviously, in my, my former life as a school librarian, Carnegie introduced um, Maurice, the amazing Maurice. Yes. Oh, and his rodent, yeah. Oh, I've read that for years. He should have won. He should have won. Mm. <clears throat> yeah, that's true. Yeah. I had several years, didn't I, of giving every niece and nephew box sets of Tiffany Aiken. Are you under the impression they made it to the nieces and nephews? <laughs> <laughs> really? Um, my story is very similar to Tina's, really. I was introduced to Pratchett in the sixth form uh, by my mate Spike. We all had a mate called Spike. Yeah, we did. Uh, his best mate was called Chainsaw. Okay, no, didn't have one of them. Yeah, Spike and Chainsaw were a bit of a double act when I was in the last six. But, yeah, no, Spike introduced me to it. By telling me about the gnome in, I think it's it's either called Magic or Light Fantastic, where Rincewind meets a gnome, and there's the joke about the life of the gnome is nasty, brutish, and short, so are they. Um, and uh, I, I, I just fell in love with that joke. And then I tried, I tried to get into a colour of magic, and I, I just couldn't get into it at all. Because yeah, for those listeners that aren't, familiar with Pratchett, um, Colour Magic is a really bad place to start because it's got a, a really weird structure to it. Yeah. But then somebody else gave me Mort uh, and I fell completely in love with both Mort and Death. Um, and um, I was just starting my goth phase. I'm not entirely sure that's coincidental. <laughs> um, but I went... And then just shortly after that, I went on holiday, youth hosteling, um, to the Lake District, and I really couldn't be bothered to do any hill walking. So uh, for about a week, um, I would leave the youth hostel in the morning, like you had to then, um, cycle to Ambleside, um, go to Fred Holdsworth's bookshop uh, in Ambleside, uh, and buy uh, the whatever Terry Pratchett I hadn't read. Um, I've got to say, uh, if people don't know Ambleside, um, if there was ever a bookshop that was connected to L-Space, it's Fred Holdsworth. Uh, I can't recommend it highly enough if you find yourself in that neck of the woods. Uh, so, that was, so that was how I got into it, and I just completely fell in love with his style of writing, with his characters, with his worlds. I haven't, you know, I've stuck with it. To be brutally frank, I'm happier in the Discworld than I am in the normal. Hey, wouldn't everybody be? Yeah, I always I think that there's a moral centre in his universe, which is unshakable. Yeah. happen, and there's inequality, and it's, it reflects everything that we've got. The moral centre of it is always something you can recognise and agree with. Yeah, I, mean, I think also, I mean, I found, I found Pratchett when I was relatively unformed. You know, my the, my attitudes and, and things were still kind of cementing. Yeah. And I think, honestly, Terry Pratchett has been a huge influence on, on the way I see the world, on, on my my views on things. Um, I think I think an awful lot of who and what I am, actually, has been shaped by the Pratchett view of the world. Do you think humour is typically British? Now, now, you see, there was a time... 
uh, when I would have said yes, but um, no, I don't know. It's not that it's it's a British style of humour. I think it's a particular style of humour that probably appeals to a particular kind of person. In a lot of ways, it's something that historically has been a form of wit and satire and empathy that has been but expounded by British writers, but that doesn't mean it's British. <laughs> there is a lot of empathy in his books, I think, and that for all all types of people, even if you don't like them. It's them. like a bait that you're and that you're all together with and taking the mick out of setting the world to rights, not necessarily in a way that you would do with strangers. Yeah, yeah, and I, I, I think there's a, there's a clear sense of justice. That's what you said, isn't it? You have to tell them the little lies in order that they believe the big ones, like justice. Yeah. Or as Death would have said. There's just, there's just us. Yeah. Okay, so, so we found Pratchett, but we, we didn't just find him, did we? We stayed. I mean, I'm, how old am I now? 46? I've been reading Terry Pratchett for 30 years. Okay. Huh? Yeah, I know. Um, then there must be a reason why I stuck around. Um... Okay, so um, you can't obviously can't talk about the whole of Pratchett here. I, I don't know how many books there are now, but it's a lot. About 155. <laughs> <laughs> you just googled it. Yep. <laughs> Instant fact checker. Take I'm that looking, I'm looking, I thought I'd, I because like I can't remember how many I've read, but I re- re- bet I've read loads. I've just had a look, and yeah, I've read loads. I've read. Pretty much everything. Uh, I've read the whole of the Discworld except the Shepherd's Crown, which I guess we'll come to. Uh, I've read the Johnny books, the Truckers, Diggers, Wings books, uh, the early stuff, um, you know, Strata and Dark Side of the Sun. Um, and um, I've read, uh, actually, no, I haven't, totally I haven't read. I haven't read uh, The Long Earth, The Long Mars, and The Long War yet. But um, I think it might be easier to talk about favourite characters because they span books. Mm. Yeah, that's a good thought. Okay. Which one are actually most drawn to? So, I don't know. Shall, shall we just keep the same rotation? So, Tina, go on then. I was actually thinking about this last night because I remember the first one that I actually read of his, which was by no means the first that I read because it was Monstrous Regiment. I suddenly got the reference to Monstrous Regiment that quotes what Monstrous Regiment comes from. Mm-hmm. And I already knew he had all sorts of political and all sorts of references in there but that's the first one that I realised actually he's teaching us something as well mm-hmm. made me reevaluate all of the other characters from slightly different perspectives and I now tend to go mostly for female characters funnily enough um, and Tiffany I adore as the aforementioned giving them to every niece and nephew that I possibly can um, <laughs> Granny Weatherwax I you just her. nicked my one. <laughs> you, can, you can have her as well. It's the headology. I love the idea of yeah. magic is basically just psychology, empathy and helping. So that's something we can all do. And both Granny and then Tiffany, both of them very much in that mould. But then with all of the witches, they're so different, but they've all got that same commonality. Mm. Uh, I mean, in Granny Weatherwax and Nanny Og couldn't be further apart, really. Granny Oak's hilarious. Yeah, he's brilliant. And then, of course, there's Magrat, and there's the opera singer. What was her name? Anastasia Nutt or something? Anastasia Nutt, yeah. I mean, it's Agnes Nitt, really, isn't it? 
Yeah. But how can Tina not be saying Lady Sybil Vines? <laughs> she's not that big a character. I don't care. She's amazeballs. She is brilliant, but she's always been more of um, in relation to Vines. And I love what she's done for him. She's made that character so much more rounded and it's made a lot of comments on the nature of relationships and things through those two. Mm. But it is still centred around Vines. I suppose in many ways she's kind of Vines' wife rather than a character in her, own, in her own right, isn't she? It's interesting because we went to the Discworld exhibition at the Salisbury Museum. I know, I'm really jealous. <laughs> but, yeah, and they had a picture up there, which is a poster, which you may have seen by Paul Kidby, of loads and loads and loads of different Discworld characters. And we were looking through them. And all of a sudden, I just said, Sybil, Sybil's not on there. There's no Sybil. And I couldn't work out why that was. was and then Simon noticed there was a few others missing. And I'm wondering now if it is because she was always seen in relation to, to Vimes. To Vimes, yeah. So yeah. That's why I love her, but she's not necessarily one of the ones that I'm drawn to. Dear Heart or Adora Bell. Adora Bell, yes. She's great. And, of course, who doesn't love Susan? You have to love Susan. Susan's so healer, yeah. She's so awesome. Uh, for the, for, okay, um, just for the benefit of people who maybe are not so familiar with the series, uh, we've mentioned a lot of characters. Uh, I'd better just do a quick roundup of um, sort of who we're talking about, who these people are. Um, Samuel Vines is the head of the Ankh-Morpork City Watch. Ankh-Morpork being the sort of big city on the Discworld. It's very much a, a medieval London kind of place. Uh, when we first meet Sam, he's an alcoholic loser. Um, literally, literally lying in a gutter. Um, as the books progress over several books, uh, the watch becomes more important. He gets his act together. Uh, he defeats a dragon. Um, he develops the watch into a, a genuine force. Um, he is elevated to the level of Duke. He marries a duchess. Um, and, you know, he becomes one of the most important, one of the most powerful and respected men on the disc. But he never, ever forgets where he's from you know he's a grubby little kid from the wrong end of town and he never forgets that uh lady sybil is his wife um from one of the richest families in ankh-morpork um very fond of dragons um who else we talked about um susan stohelet is um technically the granddaughter of death um she is um the daughter of mort uh and death's adopted daughter isabel um, who else did we talk about? Well, Granny. Oh, Granny Weatherwax. Bang, Nanny Dog. How can you not love Granny Weatherwax? Uh, Granny Weatherwax is... Matriarch. The, the matriarch of the Ramtop Mountain Witches. The matriarch in the We Free Men, though. No, yeah, there is. There is. Yeah, but I like, I like Pratchett's d description of um, Granny's position in the, in the Witches' society. Um, he says something, I'm, I'm doing this from memory, but it's one that stuck with me. Um, witches don't really have leaders. Granny was one of the leaders they didn't have. Yeah. yeah. And I, I've always liked that as a, yeah. as a description. Yeah. She's very hard to describe because she's so influential, even in books that she's barely mentioned. There was her early romance with um, the Arch-Chancellor. Mr. Wickley. Oh, yeah. The Arch-Chancellor of... Um, the Unseen University, yes. Head wizard. I'm talking of... Uh, we've, we've named loads of female characters. Mm -hmm. 
Um, of course, we're actually assuming that they, uh, the, the characters do ascribe to gender as we think of them. But anyway, that's, 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 a, that's a fair point here, but I think, I think most of them kind of do. Yeah, I think they do. And I'm yeah. Lynn, you nana. I can't tell you a point, because it was a good guess. Oh, no. What about Nobby Nobs, though? Uh, oh, no. Yeah, okay. Nobby Nobs, let's be honest, no gender would actually claim him. No. True. <laughs> but he's hilarious. He's brilliant, yeah. Yeah, no, I like Corporal Nobs. He's. Uh... Yeah. And I have to say, the librarian. Oh, yeah, well, obviously. Oop. Yes. Oop. And actually, yes, and I like. I like the librarian for several reasons because he's he's the librarian is a real example of what Pratchett does because the librarian begins in the Light Fantastic the second book of the Discworld series as a two line joke yeah it's just a magical a magical explosion and there's a throwaway line about um, nobody could nobody could find a librarian but there was an orangutan who looked a lot like him or something like that yeah. And it's just a throwaway line in a book that I don't think he thought was going to get a sequel. And then the next time we find ourselves in the library of the Unseen University, the librarian is an orangutan. And then you just run with it. The librarian becomes this iconic figure. John's just looked up the real name of the librarian, by the way. Oh, go on. You want to know? Yeah. He did that. <laughs> Horace Warblehat. Oh, Horace Warblehat, that's brilliant! I'm hoping that wasn't from Wikipedia. Are we citing our sources, John? No. You are such a librarian, Lynn. Yeah, cite your sources. <laughs> We're not at school now. <laughs> Thank the Lord. We want facts. Factual facts. Not fictional facts. Yeah. Oh, is there a bit in the book where the orangutan, he actually makes an active choice not to turn back? I think it's a, I remember that. It says that on several several times actually. It's mentioned that he actively resists any attempts to turn him back. Yeah. That said, that alone says quite a lot as well. Yeah, I mean there are a lot of references to uh, large hands and hands our feet being really useful in the higher stacks uh, of the of the library. Yes. Um, uh, and that in a lot of ways I think Terry probably did actually believe orangutans were more useful to the planet than we were. Oh, I'm sure he did, yeah. Because he was patron of the Orangutan Society. Yeah, in about, I think it was 2005, Simon, who is my husband, uh, directed Weird Sisters. Um, I was in it. I did play Duchess Felmet, who's awesomely evil. And um, the only way you could get the rights to perform one of his plays was if you made a donation, I think it's £250, to the Orangutan Foundation. That's all you needed to do. That's fantastic. I love that. So we did it in aid of that and raised some more for it as well. Brilliant. Hmm. I remember seeing, oh, years ago now, uh, a documentary about orangutans. Uh, it was fronted by uh, Terry Pratchett. Um, I, I remember just one bit of description he used. Um, he described the, the, the sort of baby orangutans um, sort of lowering themselves headfirst out of the foliage as... Um, Looking like surprised coconuts. Yeah, I think he got increasingly better at editing himself as well, and it shows because how, as his books matured, not mm. more in each one. Yeah, yeah, I think so. Screens open at any one time when he was writing, and was working on three books at any one time as well. As someone who is still working on uh, a novel I started twenty-five years ago, 
Um, and a comic, a four, a four issue comic series, four issues for God's sake, comic series that I signed a contract for uh, with a publisher in 2005. I remember. Um, I, I, I am insanely jealous of how he could just... It's not just... I was about to say how he just churned them out, but that makes it sound like it was. it's low-grade dross, and it isn't. It's such high-quality, immensely clever, witty prose. And he just seemed endless. I think with him it was more he couldn't not write. Mm. I think there's a lot of truth in that, yeah. Breathing. Yeah. You'd, I think you'd have to have that level of dedication to do that much. Yeah. Genius. The word genius is overused, but I really do think it applies to Terry Pratchett, yeah. I really do think it applies. Yeah, it's not a word I use a lot. A lot. That and evil. Not two words I apply often. Mm. But he's definitely a genius. Not evil. Genius. De- definitely, definitely a genius. Uh, so, so Lynn, uh, who, are, who are the characters that you would pick out? I've just said Nobby Nobs. Nobby Nobs and um, the one that Tina made me be at Simon's 40th birthday. <laughs> I wasn't at Simon's 40th birthday, and neither were the listeners. So that's oh god, it was uh, Madam. Oh, I was head of the Guild of Seamstresses. Uh, ah, what Mrs. Pom? That's it. That's Rosie it. Rosie Pom. She didn't tell me. Suggested <laughs> 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 it. <laughs> but I took it and ran with it, uh, and that's what my hens were called on my hen night before I married John. We were the Guild of Seamstresses, and we spent the night introducing Terry Pratchett to everybody who said, "Who on earth is the Guild of Seamstresses?" Yeah, oh, that's... so I spent the whole night introducing Terry Pratchett to people on the mean streets of Doncaster. Fantastic! And, uh, yeah, that's proper that's missionary work. John, who were you at the? That was Mr. Tea Time. Yeah, John was oh. Mr. Tea Time. Uh, Mr. Tia Teme, please. Yeah, I would have been Red Shoe, but... Zombie makeup would have been a bit much. Zombie makeup was a bit of a stretch, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> but he had the um, he had the white... He looked amazing. That's did. We all did. We looked eye. amazing. I'm sure you all did. Um, for the benefit of the listeners, um, the Guild of Seamstresses is a euphemism. Um, and... Mrs. Palm, Rosie Palm. Uh, John's just put it. Well, how's that? Ladies of negotiable affection. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Let's just say. Let's just say that um, in the novel Nightwatch, when there's a revolution and one of the demands is free love, the guild of seamstresses um, is very keen to make sure that it's simply reasonably priced. And that that, te- that tells you who the guild of seamstresses are. Um, Very much in charge. Yeah, yeah, and you're definitely not going there to get a hem adjusted. <laughs> yeah. Actually, I suppose, I suppose actually. Well, you could. Yeah. I did. You'd be getting, you'd be getting something adjusted. Because <laughs> <laughs> doesn't 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 carrot actually he does doesn't he in guards guards carrots um, when he first arrives at Oak Pork. Um, takes lodgings at the Gilders at Mrs. Palms. He just thinks they're nice little old ladies. Yeah, he just thinks that. Yeah, he just thinks they're nice girls. Yeah. But they don't seem to be very good at sewing. Is what is, is his is his, <laughs> his only observation. Because everyone's very impressed that he stays there every night. Except. <laughs> yeah. And then Angua. Oh my God, Angua! How could we forget her? Oh. 
what her name was. I'm werewolf, isn't she? Yeah, I'm. I'm halfway through um, uh, the Fifth Elephant at the moment. Um, I'm very, very slowly uh, since since Pratchett died. I've been very, very slowly reading my way through his entire canon. I've just got to halfway through Fifth Elephant. And Anya is a major part of that. Yeah. And what an amazing character she is. Yeah. And the whole um, dichotomy, is that the right word? Probably not. Um, of, you know, Carrot sort of thinks of her as a, a human who occasionally becomes a wolf. In, in, in Fifth Elephant in particular, she, it's, it's very clear. No, she's not a human. Ever. She's always a werewolf. She's never she's never a human, she's never a wolf. And that yeah. that duality is really cleverly written. And her frustration at Carrot for not being able to, to get it. It means he's not getting her. Exactly. Yeah. And I suppose, again, for the benefit of the listener, Carrot is a character who first appears in Guard Guards. He's called Carrot because He's carrot-shaped in that he's triangular because he's extraordinarily muscular. Um, he's, what, is he six foot six? Something like that. Very tall. He's very, very tall. Um, and although he's genetically human, he thinks of himself as a dwarf yeah. because he was, ra- he was adopted by dwarves uh, as a baby and raised in a dwarvish mine. So he thinks of himself as a dwarf. He speaks fluent dwarvish. Um and has a very dwarvish moral code. Um, and he's also, it is very clear, um, the rightful king of Antwerp. Yes. yes. Um, but he doesn't want to be. Uh, is it, it, it's sort of hinted that he sort of knows this, but sort of doesn't, just doesn't mention it. Yeah. Because he doesn't want to be. He didn't think about. Yeah, he, for him, the, the highest honour is to be a captain of the guards, which is what he is. Um, and Angela is uh, his girlfriend, we call Paramore, John's put it as. Oh, Paul John, that's brilliant. Paramore is much better. Um, He's cheesy grinning now. <laughs> <laughs> um, and she is a werewolf, which Carrot doesn't initially know. Um, and as a dwarf, he has some prejudices against werewolves, and that is a thing for a bit. So, yeah, no, I like Angela. I, I like the way she's, she's portrayed. And actually, I have to say, in the hands of a lesser writer, Angela could actually have been quite problematic because in her human-appearing form, um, she is described as being extraordinarily attractive. Yeah. And as a... Uh, yeah. And as a consequence of being a werewolf, she occasionally turns up in places naked. Yeah, yes. And... In the hands of a lesser writer, a more salacious writer, that that could just have been tacky. Well, what they'd do would be to write it from the observer's point of view. Yeah. What Terry did wrote it from Angler's point of view. Hmm. The awkwardness, the embarrassment. Yeah, and it's only dwells on the practicalities. You know, she's she's got changes of clothes stashed in alleys all over all over the city. Um, you know, she keeps her. Um, Take more pork city watch badge um, on a necklace, yeah. So she can wear it in both forms, and yeah, you know, it's just 
little things like that. There's, there's a wonderful line, actually. Um, I forget which book it's in. I don't think it's God's God's. Um, but she's staying at... I can't remember what a landlady's called. But it, it's it's mentioned that she, she chooses to stay at the lodgings that she has because her landlady knows to leave a downstairs window open. She's a very in-depth character for one that's not actually featured that heavily. Mm. I think she's more fleshed out than Sybil Vimes is. Very much so. Yeah. Anybody fancy a rat on a stick now? (laughs) Sausage in fun. I'll be cutting my own throat. (laughs) Yeah, Seamot Diddler. Yeah. Yeah, Seamot Diddler. Diddler's great, isn't he? He is. Yeah. All seen one of him. He's Del Boy, John's just said. Why don't you speak up, John? He absolutely is. Yeah, well, I love that he keeps, no matter where we are on the disc world, a Dibbler, a version of Dibbler always appears. Yeah. You know, I mean, there's a, there's a version of Dibbler in uh, Jelly Baby. Realise me. Yeah. And do you know what? It took me ages to get that joke. (laughs) Even when he says, um, Jelly Baby, literally, child of the gel. I still didn't get it. No, it took me ages to get Jelly Belly as well, yeah. Um, and for the, benefit, for the benefit of the listeners, I will, in the, in the show notes, I'll put how Jelly Baby is spelt. Um, it's, a, it's an allegory for Egypt, basically, and you'll, you'll see why I maybe didn't get it. Um, or, you'll just get, or, or you'll get it immediately and just assume I'm terribly slow on the uptake. One, one of the two. Well, he just packs so many jokes into each book. It'd be impossible to get them all. Yeah. Um, Pyramids, the book featuring Jelly Baby. Um, I love that the camel's called You Bastard. Yeah. Because why else would you call a camel? Yeah. <laughs> just, and I also love that he's the greatest math, math, mathematician on the disc. Yeah. But he's stuck in a camel for <laughs> uh, We could go about this forever. Have I got any characters to add? Uh, we've mentioned Tiffany. Actually, I'll tell you, since I've just fessed up to not getting the joke of Jelly Baby, when I first read um, the first Tiffany Aching book, is that Half on Sky? Yeah. Yeah. It wasn't until, Lynn, yeah. um, I read Half of Sky to my form in our library lessons. Yes. Um, that I got that Miss Tick was Mystic. Yeah. 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 No. Great, Red J. I know, I felt really stupid. Yes, so you should. But yeah, so no, Tiffany's wonderful. I, I love Tiffany because Tiffany is Tiffany has that set that that practical sense that a lot of Pratchett's best characters, particularly his best female characters, actually have. Um, you know, where there's the uh, the scene in um, Hatful of Sky. I think it's Hatful of Sky where the the water monster's coming for her and she hits it with a frying pan. Yeah. Because, you know, magic's all very well, but you can't really beat a cast-iron frying pan. Yeah. Um, yeah, I love that. that. That's such a... I mean, that's before she meets Granny Weatherwax. But that's yeah. such a Granny Weatherwax thing to do. Like, yeah, I mean, I could use magic, but it's probably better just to hit you with a massive pan, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, so we've talked about Tiffany, we've talked about Carrot, we've talked about Vines. Understood. Who? Understood. Oh, Ponder! Oh, Ponder's great! Hex! Ponder and Hex, yes! Oh, 
PhD, Head of Ill-Advisedly Applied Magic. Simon's just wandered in. Yes, he works in the High Energy Magic Building. Yeah. Um, just got that. <laughs> got what? Hem. It's almost hem. High Energy Magic. Yeah. What? Hem. High Energy Magic Project. Hem. Oh my God. <laughs> Making it up now. I've never got that. See, we're still we're still learning new things. <laughs> <laughs> I just make it up. And that is the joy of project, isn't it? Yes. Made it up. Yeah, I know, I know, but I mean, Pondo is your archetypal geek. Yeah. And I love that all his all his friends who hang around in the high energy magic building are equally spotty, and they've all they've all given themselves like really stupid nicknames, but they're actually called like Dave and Trev. Yeah. Dave and Trev. Yeah, I love that. I I I knew quite a few people like that when I was at uni. Is all I'm saying. Yeah. I'm, I'm not naming them in case they're listening. Like that, Reginald. So yeah, no, Ponder Stibbons, yeah. I'll tell you who I haven't mentioned yet. And I, maybe it's just because I'm, I'm in the middle of the fifth elephant. Uh, but Gaspode. Oh, the dog. Talking dog, of yes. course. Um, I love Gaspode. I love, but again, Gaspode in many ways is kind of like a recycled character. He's Gaspode the Wonder Dog in Moving Pictures, uh, where he magically gets the ability to talk because movies need a talking dog. And then at the end of moving pictures, that there, are, there is actually a sequence where his self-awareness and his ability to speak and stuff, like, fades. But then he obviously just decided, this is a really great character. I'm going to use him again. Yeah. And so just invents, a, a, just a, in, like, one paragraph, just just has a little explanation about how he was sniffing around the the waste dumps at the Unseen University and got hit by some magic. And with that, and Gaspo's back. And I, I love Gaspo. And I love Gaspo particularly because he's he's Boombrick, yeah. if that makes sense. He's the one who says, hang on a minute, uh, really? What? We're doing, we're doing this? Okay. And he never quite understands what the humans are doing. Because he wouldn't, because he's a dog. I suppose, I just see him as a bit more intelligent than Baldrick, which I think uh, says more about Baldrick, really. Okay, fair point. No, fair point. Actually, yes. Yes, Baldrick is not as clever as Gaspard the Wonder Dog. That is fair. But I do get what you mean. Um, now we're to bug rip Millennium Hand and Shrimp. Look, now, Farrow Run, bug rip Millennium Hand and Shrimp. Am I missing something? It does bug rip Millennium Hand and Shrimp actually, is that, is that a reference to something? No. Because he uses it more than once. It's his way of swearing. The old, uh, the old bad lady in the Johnny books also says bugger it, Millennium Hand and Shrimp. I've never noticed that. She does. Oh, maybe it's a homeless people muttering to themselves thing. Oh, it's, 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 just, it's just a very specific thing. And I, yeah. I mean, it could just be a military recycled idea, but... But I'll tell you who we've mentioned. We mentioned the Royal Bell. We have not yet mentioned Moist Von Lipwig. <laughs> Sorry, the name. Um, no, so I'm not one of the people, I'm not one of those people who has an issue with the word moist, but I know a lot of people hate it as a word. And so I love the fact that he made that somebody's name. Yeah, and when you're reading him, actually, the word becomes just a name. But I like him because... I've described him in the past as a lovable rogue, but I think he's more than that. I mean, when we first meet him, he's being executed. Yeah. And he's saved specifically 
so that he can do a particular task. He's saved by the patrician of Ankh-Morpork. Um, I like the fact that, you know, he's, he's a con man, he's a grifter, he's a chancer, but he, again, like so many Pratchett characters, he's got a very firm moral centre. Yeah. There are things that he will not do. Did you ever see a programme called Hustle? There's a character called Mickey, played by Adrian Lester. That's who I see more, most from lip regards. They don't look anything like each other. Who's ringing? I don't know. Not me. It's a phantom phone. You're going to edit this out anyway, aren't you? I can edit it, yeah. Yeah, look, talk about Moist von Litwig. Um, I always liken him to a character called Mickey in the TV programme Hustle. Mm-hmm. Played by Adrian Lester. They don't actually look anything alike, but it's he's a high-end grifter. And, yeah, he breaks the law a lot, but there's, he does it for the right reasons. Even if one of those reasons might happen to be self-gain, he doesn't hurt good people. That's Moist from Litwick. He doesn't Yes. Yeah, if, if, if Moist con you, it's because you damn well deserve to be conned. Yeah. He doesn't take advantage of people who can't afford to be taken advantage of. But with him, it's something that he comes to. He doesn't start like that. At the beginning, he is constantly trying to run away. He has to learn to become good and let himself be good. I think that's quite an interesting journey. Yes. I say, well, yes, he's sort of an anti-hero. But in the end, he he does an awful lot of good. I mean, he, you know, he creates the post office. He creates the tax. Um, yeah. Jobs in the, while he's doing it as well. Yeah, I like Moist. He's that kind of good boss idea in the end as well. I just don't like that word. <laughs> moist, 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 moist. Oh, don't like it. <laughs> No! It's not a lot better. You're horrible. All of you. I love it when you two argue because I can't tell who I can't tell who's who and so it just sounds like somebody talking to themselves. <laughs> we do that a lot. Yeah. Maybe you are talking to one person and we've got two Skypes open at the same time. Yeah, did you not think of that? Maybe we're just the world's most clever ventriloquist. <laughs> which makes no sense. That could be a thing. Oh dear god. <laughs> this was your idea, Reggie. It really was, wasn't it? Yeah. <laughs> You're now picturing The Shining. <laughs> Bear in mind, we were identically blonde, with, and we have blue eyes. I know. I've seen. I've seen pictures. Eve six, Eve eight. So shall we? Shall we just diverge a little bit away from the disc work? Because it's very easy in a discussion about Pratchett to concentrate just on the Discworld. Because there's so much of it. And it's such a beautiful... I mean, you know, I mean, there's... And he uses the Discworld to, to parody pretty much everything. Ancient Egypt crops up. The music industry crops up. Um, the Industrial Revolution crops up. Um, policing policy, international relations. And, yeah... Everything is in the Discworld. And it's, it's such a huge thing. But it isn't the only thing that Pratchett did, as, as we said earlier. I mean, he was just so astonishingly prolific. Oh, Can- yeah. Nation is one of my favourites. I was going to say, um, I'd like to talk a little bit about Nation, because it was pitched as kind of a... Maybe not quite a kid's book, but certainly a young adult novel. And I actually think it's one of the most powerful pieces of writing I've ever come across. 
Yeah, me too. Stunning. I mean, again, for listeners who are not familiar with the novel, um, first of all, seriously, press pause, go to a bookshop, an actual bookshop, don't be buying things online, certainly not from an online retailer named after a jungle, because we don't like them. Um, but but go, to, go to a bookshop, get a copy of Nation by Terry Pratchett, and then read it, and then come back and listen to the rest of this, um, and be grateful that we pointed it out to you. Because your life will be better for having Red Nation. And you will recommend it to everyone you know. No, I certainly do. It's a stunning piece of work. Because it's it covers so much. I mean, you've got the complete destruction of the protagonist's entire world at the start. Yeah. And then he has to deal with the fact that everybody he knows is dead. And that's, that's a really hard thing to put in a young adult book. I mean, people... People talk about things like the Hunger Games as being, like, dystopian, but it's nothing compared to the beginning of Nation. And then, again, you get that wonderful Pratchett practicality. You get the explanation of the religion of the islands that the protagonist is from. Um, you know, they, they, they sing a particular song when they're making their alcoholic beverage because it needs a particular amount of time to ferment, and that's how long the, to- the song takes. And then you get the, the brilliant critique of colonialism. Oh, super. Where, uh, for that, again, for those not familiar with the book, Nation is set in a, a world very like our own. Um, there's a tsunami, and an island civilization is completely destroyed. The island is swamped. The only survivor is a young boy who happened to be in a canoe at the time. Wow. Um, and he has, to deal with, he has to deal with the bodies of pretty much everybody he knows. Yeah. And also caught up in this tsunami is a ship. Is it actually? Is it ever identified as a British ship, or is that just implied? Yeah. So there's a ship um, on board, which is the daughter of a, an admiral or captain or something, and the ship is wrecked on this island, and she's the only survivor, and they meet, and they start to rebuild things together and deal with everything they have to deal with together. And then her dad turns up at the end, and he's doing that, that classic British colonial thing of wading ashore with a flag to plant on the beach because he's the first. You can't... Nobody here can see me. Lynn and, and Tina can't see me, and you, dear listeners, can't see me either, but I'm doing air quotes. He's the first civilised person to arrive at this island. So he comes to plant his flag, and his daughter is furious. Yeah, how dare he come and claim this? That it just he was already there, and he hasn't done anything. Um, and I love that that critique. It, 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 I, I think I said at the time when I read it that it should be a book in history lesson mm. on how to interpret history. Yes, I'd absolutely agree with that. Done. Because you could see every every side of it, but you could also see exactly what the right side was, and it's not the one that dry textbooks present you. Yes, yeah, I, I think it's it's a wonderful encouragement to critical thinking. Yeah. Um, yes, I, I I would love any kid who's doing GCSE history should read Nation. Um, just just to give them that little nudge in the direction of thinking. Hang on a minute, really? It, it teaches you to question. It does. If you have questions, it's wonderful. 
And I have to say, I also love the fact that, you know, it, throughout nation, the gods of the island, uh, the ancestors of the island, um, are a very real presence in a kind of supernatural way. But the, the thrust of the book is that the way forward is science. And I very much like the, uh, and again, this is so very Terry, I very much like the way that he doesn't portray the religious side of that culture as superstitious mumbo-jumbo and science is right. It's, you know, it's accepted. You know, do you know what? There's space for both. One doesn't exclude the other. You can, you, you know, you can, yeah. you can accept it or not. That's fine. Um, as long as you recognise that science is actually true. And there's the wonderful scene at the end with the telescope looking at Jupiter, which I have done, and it works, and it's brilliant. And, dear listener, if you have access to a telescope, it's very, very, very important that if you have access to a telescope during the day, that you never look anywhere near the sun, because it will totally blind you, and if you do that, that's not my fault, okay? <laughs> but... Disclaimer accepted. It's, it's in the... It's, at the end of the novel Nation, there's a description, and it's set many, 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 many years after the, the, the main events of the story. And we see this island nation has become a, uh, a centre of science and technology and intellect and research and development and wisdom. And there's an old man with a telescope in broad daylight, and he shows somebody through the telescope Jupiter. And inspired by that, I got my telescope out one bright sunny day and had a look. It took me bloody ages to find. It's really hard finding solar system objects when it's daylight. But actually, yes. You can see Jupiter through a telescope during the day if Jupiter's in the right place. And it's an absolutely beautiful sight. And do you know what? If Terry Pratchett had never done anything else for me, just pointing out to me that that was possible would be enough. I can't recommend it highly enough. If you have access to a telescope, give it a go. Jupiter is, well, anything in daylight, in in a daylight sky, is really hard to find. Two top tips. Put your telescope in the shade, because then it will be impossible to accidentally look at the sun. That's a very good tip. I'm going to chuck the um, don't look at the sun through a telescope thing in there again. <laughs> it totally will burn your retinas out. It will hurt like hell, and you'll go blind. Okay? You I mean, sound like so much fun. But I'm tempted to say it's almost worth the risk. <laughs> um, yeah, I think you'd be on your own on that one. <laughs> Yeah, definitely. Well, actually, no, it's, it's the swallows and Amazon's line. Better drown than duffers. If not, duffers will not drown. Um, only an idiot would point. Only an idiot would point a telescope at the sun. Yes. Um, so you know, don't do it. If Jupiter's anywhere near the sun, don't look at it in daylight. But if Jupiter's on the other side of the sky to the sun, it's perfectly safe and it's fine. And do have a look. Wait, nothing from this conversation other than that. <laughs> So I wasn't intended to give astronomy tips. <laughs> Pratchett's fault. Absolutely, I'm blaming him. Um, and he's dead, so you can't see him. <laughs> too soon? Yeah. Yes. Too soon. <laughs> Way too soon. What's the matter with you, you sicko? Well, you're talking to somebody who refuses to read The Shepherd's Crown because I refuse, I refuse to live in a world where there's no more Pratchett to read. Oh, yeah. That's a treat coming to you. Yeah, I know the, I know the big spoiler. No, it's impossible. It's, no. Well, I, I can't be... I can't be... It's, it's how old? How old now? I, I, I can't not read a book for several years and then get across that somebody lets slip what happens in it. No, I just think that was even spoiled 
the story for you at all. It's so perfect. I'm sure, yeah. Um, and to be honest, I, 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 it makes perfect sense. I mean, he was dying and he knew he was. He was too thoughtful and too introspective a man to not have a meditation on that in the book he was writing at the time. And so the, a major character that he and we cared about was going to die was probably a no-brainer, really. To me, it felt like a gift to his fans as well. He was kind of helping you through the grief. Mm, yes. It, it, I think a lot of people found that. Yeah, Yeah, I think possibly. But then I mean, perhaps his attitude to death even before he was ill, I mean, the character of death has never been a frightening character. You know, he never, he never presented death as something terrifying. Yeah, but that's the thing with it, though. I think it's not about the person who dies. It's about the reactions of the person, the people around them, who suddenly mm. got a shift in their whole environment. It's that bit. It's beautiful. It really is. That book is beautiful. I will one day read it. Just not yet. Yeah. Not yet. I'm not ready yet. I'm not ready yet for a world where there's no more Pratchett. Yeah. That's well, fair. Luck, I guess I'm lucky then because there's still Pratchett that I haven't read. So I like your idea, Reggie, of starting the canon right from the start. I started, I, st- I started with, I know I've got the order slightly wrong. Um, I'm not obsessive enough to uh, to go full on like everything in the right order. But I, I started with um, Strata and then Dark Side of the Sun, and then I started the Discworld. I'm going to work through the Discworld. Um, I'm going to work through the, the the adult Discworld if that makes sense, yeah. um, and leave um, the the Tiffany stories off because Shepherd's Crown is at the end of those. Yes. Yeah. When I finish the Discworld, I'm going to read all the other bits, and then I'm going to go. I'm going to. I'm going to. I'm going to start with the Hatful of Sky and read through. Um, no, it's Wolfie Men first, isn't it? We we'll start with Wolfie Men, then Hatful of Sky, um, then Wintersmith, and then finally Shepherd's Crown. And you know what? I reckon there'll be about sixty by the time I get through all of that lot. Um, maybe by then I'll be ready. If not, you can just start again. No, that's always that. I mean, it, it, it's, it's a terrible thing to me that there'll never be another new Pratchett novel. Um, but there are so many Pratchett novels that, yeah, there, 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 there is enough, I think, to last a lifetime. Yes. It's kind of what you were saying as well about how we used death. He steamrolled all of his hard drives. So that's it. He made a very definite statement. Oh, I have such mixed feelings about that. I mean, I absolutely salute his estate for going through with that. Because genuinely, do you know what? It's quite an easy thing. If you're Terry Pratchett and, you know, you're dying and you know you are, um, and you've got this ambiguance that's destroying your brain, it's quite an easy, it's almost a glib thing to say, when I'm gone, destroy everything, smash it up. I don't want anybody to come, you know, no one's going to mess about with what I've, all my notes and stuff. Just destroy them. When I'm gone, it's gone and it's over. That's quite an easy thing to say. It's unusual for their estate to carry that out. Yeah. Lots of writers have, have left those instructions and then been ignored. I kind of salute his estate for going, yeah, Terry said do this, so we're doing it. You know, I mean, I, I'm not going to... I'm not going to lie, there's, there's a huge part of me that really wants to know what was on that hard drive. Oh, God, yeah. Um, to, see the, to see the film of that steamroller going over it was a little bit heartbreaking, but there was another little bit of me that thought it was hilarious. <laughs> I mean, 
if you're gonna destroy all your unpublished work, rolling over your hard drive with a steam roller is a hell of a way to do it. It'll work. Oh yeah, it works. I have to say, there's a little bit of me though that thinks that somebody somewhere has a memory stick. <laughs> you and your conspiracy theories. My goodness, lone gunman extraordinaire. <laughs> no, you see, I just know what I would have done. Um, well, I'm not making you executor in my state, then. <laughs> <laughs> no, you see, I... I get what you mean. I, I'm not sure I could have done it. It's that's your, It's almost like you're making the decision for them to, to go. Yeah, it is. Yeah. It, it, I, I'm, 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 I just don't think I could have done it. I don't think I'd have published it. You know, if I'd been in that position, I, 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 I wouldn't have published it. I wouldn't have gone, I have Terry... I wouldn't have done. A, I wouldn't have done what's been done to Dorothy L. Sayers. I, I don't know if you guys are familiar with her work. Yeah, she's a novelist, right? Yeah. Uh, when she died, I mean, she died stupidly young. But when she died, uh, she left um, a couple of unfinished manuscripts, which sat in a safe at her publishers for quite a long time. And in the late nineties, they just gave them. Well, they didn't just give them. They passed them on to a, um, a crime novelist called Jill Peyton Walsh, who finished them, and then those books were published. Uh, and Peyton Walsh has since gone on to write other books featuring Dorothy S.S. characters. Um, I don't... Had I had access to Pratchett's hard drives, I don't think I'd have done that. I wouldn't have tried to finish his work... Good God, I wouldn't have presumed to try and finish his work myself. But I wouldn't have tried to find somebody else to do it. But I think maybe what I would have done is make those notes available so that people could see these are the plans he had. These are the ideas that never got realised. And if people went and made fan fiction out of that, that would have been cool, I think. Um, but having said all of that, I think I'm very, very glad that Pratchett's wishes were respected because that's what he wanted. And I, I guess we owe him that. His intellectual property. Absolutely. And as I say, I think we owe him that. I mean, he gave us so much. I think the least we can do is, in the end, is in spite of what we want, I guess, the least we can do is respect what he wanted. Ultimately, it was the right thing to do. Hard thing, but right thing. Yeah. Bloody hell, this has got sombre all of a sudden. It has, but then it's bound to be once you get to the tail end of it, isn't it? Because it's... Yeah, I suppose. The world's a lesser place without him. That is certainly true. I mean, Tina, did you meet him when you went to the Pratchett convention? Yeah. Sort of. Um, he was... Um, was it Nigel? He was his alter ego. We don't speak to his alter ego, so I think he had his other name badge on, so he could wander around freely and no one would disturb him. But, um, yeah, we did see him talk in... It was 2006, so it was when they were just making the first film, The Father, and they brought along a load of the teeth. We all got them. Oh, well. What do you think of the adaptations? I've only ever seen Going Postal. I liked it, but... I haven't seen any of them. They will be on Sky, which I do not have, so... Uh... The Hogfather is brilliant. That has David Jason as Albert, is that right? Yeah, that's perfect casting. He was just right for that part. Um, the rest of them were okay, but they were okay. That didn't sound like effusive praise. Well, I, I'm just thinking, they were... Okay, as Pratchett adaptations, but as far as TV goes, they were absolutely brilliant. <laughs> I do, yeah. yeah. Do you know what I mean? I do. Compared to not Terry Pratchett, they were really, really good. <laughs> but compared to the book, they were okay. Uh, that's also the radio adaptations, though, isn't it? Apart from the podcast, 
I will, because they all have on DVD, or I'll, I'll catch it with them at some point. Well, they won't spoil the books at all, you know, they still appreciate the books, but, and they're worth watching, they're just not. Well, his, his imagination was so vivid that there's no way you could actually film one of the books. No, I think that's fair, actually. Um, be what everybody would be expecting. Yeah. No books are, are they? It doesn't matter what you do, it's never what the people who've read it, who've made it their own, will be expecting. You're worth watching. And goodness sake, are we ever going to get Citywatch. Oh. Series of Citywatch. I hope so. I would love that. How long have they been talking about that now? Do you know what? If Netflix exists for anything, it's to have an eight more book City Watch series. Yes. I I'm running out I'm running out of things to box binge. Campaign set up on this site. Campaign to get that done. Yeah. Do it. Yeah. Do it. Do it. Do it. Oh. Listeners, you know what to do. I'm sure Netflix has an email address. Bombard them with demands for an Ain't More Pork City Watch. Stop talking about it! Film it! Because actually that would work beautifully. Ain't More Pork as a city offers so many opportunities. And police procedurals are pretty much every TV company's stock in trade. It can't be that hard, surely. Yeah, this is, just a, this is just a very strange police procedural. And it would work beautifully. And there's so much that's in the books already that you could do. You know, I mean, there's... that, that You could start with the whole of the Guards series um, as your basis. That would give you, what, half a dozen seasons of television? Easily. And then you could just develop those characters further. It needs to be done. It really, really does. I, I, I hope. Uh, I think Leona Pratchett was was involved in something to do with this, wasn't she? I don't know what stage it ever got to. What's happening with it now? Needs to happen. So we've talked about this. We've talked about Nation. Um, does anybody have any other favourite bits of Pratchett that we haven't mentioned yet? Well, there's always good. His collaboration with Neil Gaiman. Ah, good omens. Yeah. Oh, which is going to be a film. Yeah. That's happening. I've seen some really good pictures of that. Uh, David Tennant and um, what's his face? The miniseries. Is it a miniseries? Uh, David Tennant is um, Crowley and, oh God, what's his name? No, describe him. He's, he's in Twilight. Not that I've seen that. Not that I'm admitting that I've seen that. Um, and um, Frost Nixon. And he's Tony Blair and the Queen. Michael Sheen. Michael Sheen, that's the dude. Oh, well done. As a Zerophile. Like a Zerophile, yeah. Oh, you can hear him then. Um, I've, I've seen the stills of that. That looks really good. Um, good Omens is... Amazon and BBC. So, boo and yay. <laughs> but no, Good Omens as a book was my introduction to Neil Gaiman. Yeah, me too. Um, I I bought it the instant it came out in paperback because it had Terry Pratchett's name on the cover. And, I mean, given what I now do for a living, you would imagine I'd found Neil Gaiman first, but no. I mean, it's a cracking piece of work. It is. Say again? You can't see the scene. There's nothing in it as you read it that says, oh, this is here, this is Gaiman, this is Pratchett. That's true, yes, that's very true. it, it really does feel like it's one creative vision. Yeah. Did neither of you read The Sandman? Yeah. Of course I did. Before Good Omens? No, I read Good, o- Good Omens first. Yeah, that's right. Weirdos. Yeah, that was game, yeah. <clears throat> How does that make us weirdos? Because I couldn't think of any other way of insulting you. It's <laughs> <laughs> getting late. We, well, need to mention, we need to mention the fantastic artwork by Paul Kibbe. I would love some of that in my house. Oh, apparently we've got some. 
I am now jealous. Oh yes, we do. Sorry, Reggie. No, no, don't apologise. I'm glad you got some. Yeah, you bought it for us, you nana. <laughs> it was our wedding present. Oh, it did, didn't it? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, we no, to be fair, Lynn, I, I still am not entirely sure which one of you I'm talking to, so... <laughs> we own a bit of Ag Moorpork. You do? Yeah, no, I guess I bought you a house in the shades, as I recall. You did, yes. Has this been the weirdest conversation you've ever had, Red? I work in a comic yeah, shop. No. Comic book shop, Tina. Oh, yeah. Not to the point, I was a teacher for 16 years. No, I've had many stranger conversations than this. Yeah. <laughs> 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 I want to go and read uh, uh, Terry Pratchett again. Oh, yeah. I've read I've read um, Shepherd's Crown 2 recently, so I can't reread that. I'll have to go and look and see what else I've got. Johnny and the Bomb. What about the Long Earth series? No, I haven't read that. Um, I've got, I've got, I've got them, and obviously they're in the queue for my read of everything Pratchett. I, I haven't read them yet, so I, I actually still got a, a reasonable chunk of unread Pratchett in my future. Um, Take a while. What I have read is the uh, the short story that was the basis for the Long Earth series which I thought were amazing. So I'm really looking forward to reading them. But I, I just worry, really, because, they because they were written at the point in Pratchett's life when they were written, um, I wonder how much of it is Pratchett and how much of it is Stephen Maxter. And having not read them, I, I, I can't have a judgment. But I, that's sort of my apprehension going in, if that makes sense. It does. It's a more serious Terry Pratchett, but you can definitely see him there. Hmm. I suppose more serious makes sense. Um, I can't remember who it was that said it, but uh, there is a famous quote of somebody saying, um, the prospect of being hanged in the morning focuses the mind wonderfully. Um, you know, I mean, it's, I mean, we haven't explicitly said what happened to Terry. Um, and it, it, it's, it's perhaps the worst thing that could possibly have happened. A man whose life and work revolved so... I can't even think of a word for it. And physically, it's probably the word I'm looking for. Around his intellect. Then that's not enough, and his, his ability to, not just to, to use language, but to, to play with language. Um, and his work was so intellectual, in the best sense of that term, um, that such a man should develop Alzheimer's at such a young age. And it's just so bloody cruel. Um, and for him to know that that was happening to him, he must have been able to feel what he was losing. And I can't see how that wouldn't make you more serious. And I think, actually, in the later novels, I, th I think you can... You know, in the later solo novels, I think you can see that um i remember having a conversation at school with somebody not i know it wasn't you Lynn, i can't remember who it was with um but another another project fan um about unseen academicals and we both sort of said you know what an amazing book it was but we could sort of see that he wasn't quite as sharp and he wasn't focusing as much as he used to. Um, and I, I'm not sure what it was about Unseen Academicals that made me think that, but it seemed like a less controlled story, if that makes any sense at all. Yeah, it does. Um, I mean, I suppose, you know, we have to be massively grateful that there were, what, three novels after that that he managed to, to get out there. Um, 
you know, in Snuff and Raising Steam and The Shepherd's Crown came after that. Um, and I guess, you know, we have to be grateful that he managed to, to do that. I wonder sometimes, though, if, um, I don't know about you, Simon just made this point, but I was thinking it, so I got being psychic. Um, it was about football. Uh-huh. And I don't know about you, but I hate football. Oh, I wouldn't go as far as I hate, but yeah, I'm massively disinterested. Yeah, so for a first time in a long time, I couldn't get into the subject. Mm-hmm. And one, I, because I did feel it the same as you two, and I was wondering if maybe it was my natural bias against football and having much interest in it. Mm, maybe, although it, I mean, he was talking about, I mean, yes, of course it's a novel about football, but he based it in the the origins, the origins of the game. Um yes. In the villages. Yeah, yeah, where it was like 200 players on either side and, um, yes. y- you know, at least, at least 190 of them didn't know where the ball was. Um, and I have to say, just as, a, as, a, as an aside, um, quite by accident a few years ago, I found myself, um, I say I, I wasn't on my own, my wife was with me, um, we found ourselves in Jedburgh, uh, in the Scottish borders, and... <laughs> I'm sorry, I was thinking about about Pratchett the whole day. In fact, we went we went to Jedburgh um, ostensibly to look at Jedburgh Abbey, which is a lovely ruin of an abbey. Great, but we went to the tourist information, and the nice lady in the tourist information um, said, "Oh yes, no, the abbey is. He, you know, here's some information about the abbey, and this, this, you know, you, it's open at these hours." Um, and so. Oh, 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 and by the way, don't be alarmed that all the shops are boarded up, but it's the day of the handball. And, it, okay, it's the, the what then? And she's oh, it, it's, 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 it's a Jedburgh tradition, it happens every year, uh, it's been going on for donkey's years. And what this handball was, was there were two teams, the top team and the bottom team, literally the people on the top of the hill and the people on the bottom of the hill, and they met in the market square, and they were... 50, 60 more people on either side, and they were not wearing any kind of team identifying strips, so you couldn't tell who was on what team. And at a preordained time, one of those spectacular, and again, this reminded me so much of Pratchett, one of those spectacular, very serious blokes with a beard that you get at things like this had what looked like a very small rugby ball with streamers coming out one side, stood at the market cross and threw this ball. And both sides then fought over it until one side could get it to the opposing side's goal. But they were literally fighting in the street over this thing. And the streets were not closed. So there were cars driving down the streets whilst there were literally piles of bodies fighting over this little book and at one point there was there was a van that was delivering some stuff to a store on the main street the ball went under the under the van three people dived under the van to get the ball the van was then surrounded by a mob and as I do know because I saw them at least three ambulances were called that day um, and everybody was everybody was carrying on like this was horrible and we went back to, we went back to the tourist information at the end of the day and said, we, we've seen the handball. That was fascinating. Have you got any books about this? Any information about this? You know, the history of this event? And they didn't. There was nothing. It was just something that had always happened every year in Jedburgh. And, and so Unseen Academicals has a slightly different twist for me. Because whenever I read it, that's what I think of. Um, and dear listener, 
if you fancy that, um, I'll stick in the show notes at the time of the year that happens because it's it's truly bizarre. <laughs> Sounds a bit like Haxy Hood. <laughs> I don't know the Haxy Hood. Tell me about the Haxy Hood. January the 6th every year. Oh, hang on. No, I do know about this, I think. I don't. Look it up. It's far too difficult to explain. <laughs> <laughs> Links in the show notes, listeners. Yeah, no, I have heard of that. I've never seen it, but I have heard of it. It's, it's, it's again, it's a, it's, a, it's a massive brawl, basically, isn't it? Yes. Yeah. Very slow-moving brawl. <laughs> it's between four pubs in West Woodside and Haxley, and I can't remember the official names of everything, so I don't want to describe it, but it's a massive scrum. Yeah. It's one of those things, I've, I've, I've never seen it, um, which is ridiculous given that I grew up 10 miles from there, but it's, um, yeah, it, yes, I do know the Hexy Hood. And yeah, and, and that's, that's very much what Unseen Academicals is based on. It's not the modern game of football, although obviously it references that, but it's drawing from these old, traditional, um, massive fights between villages things that, that still go on that they do and that's that's for me I think the, the genius of Pratchett that he takes these obscure things that happen and ties them in to topical or uh, you know sort of important themes that, that run through everybody's life and then presents them through the filter of this fantasy world um, to make you think I think for me that's what that's the most important thing about Pratchett that he makes you think about things. If you yeah. if you read enough Pratchett, you can't accept anything at face value, and I think that's that's his true importance. If that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's what John said at the beginning. It's relatable. Yeah. In fact, we could probably have just condense this whole podcast just to John at the beginning saying it's relatable. Yeah, but we'd have had to expand on that. It would have made no sense. <laughs> no, you see, I, I, I think John just cut to the chase straight away. Genius. Barnsley lad, that's what they do. Genius that he is. I don't tell me he's from Barnsley. I can't, I'm not allowed to like him if he's from Barnsley. Hashtag just ask John. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, he's born in Bradford. Does that make it any better? Oh, yeah. I'm from Doncaster. I've got no beef with Bradford. Northerners. <laughs> I don't know. When do you count yourself as, as a moving in there? Um, well, I've lived up here in Yorkshire longer than I've lived down south. No. I was going to say, that doesn't answer the question, does it? Um, yes, I think I do. You see, I'm, I'm happy to accept you as a northerner. That's, that's, but, but, but do you count yourself as one? I think I do. We do. <laughs> so it's just Tina, really, just stranded down in the south. In the wasteland of southeast London. I was going to say, on the other hand, you do get to live in that London, don't you? That there London. <laughs> She's in that there London. Hi. <laughs> <laughs> you sounded more northern than both of us then, Tina. Yeah. <laughs> I'm about to send John to get me a drinking cake. <laughs> a drinking cake? A, a drink cake. and cake. Yes, darling. You said a drinking cake is a very Pratchett kind of idea, actually. I like that. Something maybe bloody stupid Johnson had come up with. Yes. Um, well, well, there's so much we haven't talked about. I mean, we haven't mentioned Laird of Quirm. Uh, we've just mentioned bloody stupid Johnson, but we haven't told anybody who he is. Um, I think this might be something we can come back to at some point. 
think so, yes. Um, but we've been, yeah, been playing around for an hour and a half now. Yeah, <laughs> um, and whilst I'm more than happy to continue this all night, I, I kind of think we should perhaps start to wrap up. Yeah, because I'm sure you have things you need to be doing. I've got to get up for work tomorrow. Well, quite, I mean, so do I, but I work in a comic shop, so it's not really that important. I own it, so. <laughs> well, I'm quite, yeah, I mean, I'm fairly sure if, if, if I'm late, the boss won't mind. You are sleeping, indeed. <laughs> whereas, whereas you guys have to have proper jobs. Yeah, yeah, grown-up things. I don't want to... Oh, that's not going to get carried away. Don't, don't be calling yourself grown-up. All right, then we should better bid each other good night. Okay, so, dear listeners, um, we, will, we will see you soon. Well, we won't see you, because it's a podcast, so, you know. But... Unless we've planted cameras in the living room. Or we won't even Don't tell them I've done that! Damn it! Oh, God, you've blown my cover now. This is no good. You can see me sat here on my other computer doing Doncaster Book Award stuff at the same time. <laughs> Multitasking. With the uh, but you see, okay. you're a school librarian and you're also good at that. Oh, I know. Don't you go, folks! Final thoughts. I sounded the spoiler horn at the beginning of this podcast, although Lynn and Tim didn't hear it because it won't actually happen to like, edit all this together. We've told you quite a lot about Terry Pratchett's work. As listeners, you will fall into two categories. You're either fans of Pratchett, in which case you're at the same time nodding sagely at all the things we've said and being apoplectic with rage at all the things we haven't covered. Which is fair enough. I, I get you. I'm quite cross at all the things I haven't covered myself. And or you've never read Terry Pratchett, in which case... As a former teacher, I have to set you some homework. Go and read some bloody Terry Pratchett. Your life will improve immensely, I promise. You might not fancy the Discworld. You could start with the uh, the Johnny books um, about a kid in a northern town somewhere. It starts with a, a skit on Space Invaders and works from there. You could start with the, the Truckers, Diggers and Wings trilogy about sort of gnome-like creatures who live in the department store. You could start with early science fiction. Um, there's a, a whole book about Flat Earth, um, and one about a massive cascade of alternative realities. What you really need to do, though, is pick up something by Terry Pratchett and read it, and I promise you, you'll be hooked. Agreed? Agreed. agreed. Oh, agreed. Entirely sure the words, never read Terry Pratchett, belong together in a sentence, but agreed. <coughs> <laughs> There are people that are that benighted. It, it pains me to say it, but it's true. They've got it all to come. Yes. Well, yeah, there's that. I mean, I kind of envy, I kind of envy you, actually, if you've never read Terry Pratchett. That's a lot of books that you've got left to enjoy. Yeah. So, on that slightly positive and moderately melancholy note, I guess we'll leave it there. So, uh, Tina, in London, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for asking me. Please come back. Uh, Lillian Doncaster, thank you so much for joining us. Not a problem. Uh, and again, please come back. We will. Um, and, dear listener, um, here endeth our peal of praise for the the wonderful Sir Terry Pratchett. Um, until next time, we will see you at the gates. 
Thank you for listening to the Geeks at the Gate podcast. Find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash geeks at the gate. Or contact us on Twitter at geeks at the gates. Or contact us by email on mail4geeksatthegates at gmail.com. That is the number four, not the word. Geeks at the Gates is a production of Venus Rising Media and is proudly made in Yorkshire.